Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 1st of May, 2022, 11 o'clock service. Ruth Henson speaking in the series, The Fruit of the Spirit, Love. We're always being reminded of the importance of fruit as part of a healthy, balanced diet. But over the next couple of months in our services, we're going to be focusing on the importance of a different kind of fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. So before we turn to today's particular theme of love, let's pause to consider the context. In the passage we heard read, Paul calls on us to live a life which is led by the Spirit and produces the fruit of the Spirit. There are a couple of key points we need to bear in mind. Firstly, the fruit is singular. These characteristics listed by Paul are the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. Singular, not plural. In other words, it's not a menu to pick and choose from, a buffet or smorgasbord for us to select some qualities from to make us a better person. I think I'll take some love and joy, perhaps a little patience, but I'll pass on the self-control if you don't mind. No, that's not how it works. The fruit of the Spirit cannot be seen as a collection of unrelated character traits that can be selected or neglected according to personal preference. Paul purposely uses a quite awkward grammatical construction in the original Greek to emphasize the fact that this is one fruit encompassing all these aspects. This is unlike the gifts of the Spirit, which are always spoken of in plural terms, as we will not all have the same gifts. But when our lives are led by the Spirit, we will exhibit all of these qualities. Just like a diamond with its many facets, all of them equally important and necessary to see the full splendour of the jewel, so too all nine different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit are required. All of which makes it obvious that the fruit is significant. Luke 6 and Matthew 7 both contain passages warning that the fruit we produce signifies a great deal. As Luke 6 verse 43 says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. I read a story about a family who had an old fruit tree in their back garden. It hadn't borne any fruit for as long as anyone could remember, not since before the children were born. But the children loved that tree. They'd climbed it, they'd swung from it, they'd hidden behind it, they'd watched birds nest in it and rescued cats from it. One evening, their father announced that the next day he was going to cut the tree down because it was dead and barren. The children begged him not to, but they couldn't persuade him. 
so they came up with a plan. The oldest child snuck out to the supermarket and bought up all the apples they could afford and a ball of string. Then, under the cover of twilight, the children tied all the apples to the unproductive branches of the tree. The next morning, the father was heard exclaiming to his wife, I can't believe my eyes. That old fruit tree that was barren for years is covered in apples. It's a miracle, especially as it's a pear tree. <laughs> Just as a dead tree bears no fruit and a rotten tree bears rotten fruit, in the same way, the fruit that we bear in our lives will reflect our state of spiritual health. When the Holy Spirit is at work in us, these Christ-like qualities of the fruit of the Spirit will start to develop and increase. Baby fruit will appear and then grow and ripen. But the harsh truth is that if we do not exhibit this fruit, then our life is not being directed by the Holy Spirit. Even if we can speak in tongues, prophesy or heal, if our lives do not display the fruit of the Spirit, then we are not being led by the Spirit. The start of our reading from 1 Corinthians 13 gives a perfect example of this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And it's love the first of the listed characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit that we are looking at this morning. Numerous song lyrics are written about this subject. I was reminded of one lyric in particular. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there is just too little of. We do live in a world that desperately needs love. But even though, as a society, we glorify the subject of love, there's often so little evidence of it in the world around us today. Very often, love is misguided. As a society, we tend to equate other things with love and miss the real point of what love should look like. For example, Many people equate love with sex, and yet so many people engage in sex without the slightest thought of love. Others think that indulgence is what love should look like, letting those we love have their own way, or giving them whatever they desire. While this might seem to be a good way to avoid confrontation and show how much we care, the failure to set boundaries or rules can lead to all sorts of problems and consequences. As well as being misguided, love is misunderstood. Compared to New Testament Greek, English is a really lazy language. We use one word to mean a whole variety of things. 
One example of this is the word fast. It can mean you are quick, or that colours don't run, or to do with tying something up, or to abstain from food, or that you are sleeping soundly, or that your watch or clock has gained time. Love is another lazy word that we throw around to mean all sorts of things. Some think of it as a topsy-turvy feeling, like butterflies in your stomach, or a warm sense of regard towards someone, or a strong desire, or a caring, benevolent feeling, or a preference, or opinion. Speaking personally, I love travelling. I love dahlias. I love my friends and family. I love seafood. I love taking photographs. I love my five godsons. I love Endeavour on the telly. I love supporting Leeds United, well, most of the time. And I love God. I love each of those things in completely different ways, but I describe my feelings with the same word. Someone once said, love is an overworked word for an underemployed emotion. I agree with their sentiment, though I'd argue that love goes beyond emotion, but more of that later. But as I said, the Greek language was much more precise. They had four main words for love. Eros, sexual or passionate love. Philia, tender affection or friendship. Storge, naturally occurring love between family members. And agape, the unconditional love of God, a selfless and sacrificial concern for the needs and well-being of others. It's no surprise that it is agape love that is being talked about as the fruit of the Spirit. And yet this is so far from what the world understands love to be like. The theologian William Barclay wrote this challenging definition of the love we are called to. Agape is a love that is freely given without counting the cost or calculating one's own profit. It goes deeper than mere emotion, lasts longer than mere attractiveness, and reaches wider than mere bloodline. It means that no matter what a man may do to us by way of insult or injury or humiliation, we will never seek anything else but his highest good. It is therefore a feeling of the mind as much as of the heart. It concerns the will as much as the emotions. It describes the deliberate effort which we can make only with the help of God, never to seek anything but the best, even for those who seek the worst for us. If that's what love should really look like and be understood to be, it's no wonder that love is missing. We only have to turn on the news or look at a newspaper to see examples of the absence of love in our society. 
Broken and dysfunctional family situations lead to despair and tragedy. Young people who feel isolated or unloved turn to gang culture. Elderly neighbours are neglected or ignored with tragic consequences. Children and young people are mistreated and abused by those who should be providing them with care and safety. And the list could go on and on. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the thing that there is just too little of. The world is starving for lack of love. In John 13, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. But it's no good just to try to understand this love as a concept. If the world needs us to demonstrate this agape love, then we need to focus on practicalities. Firstly, that agape love is inherited. 1 John chapter 4 tells us that God is love. This doesn't mean that loving is one of God's activities, but rather that everything he does is motivated by love and carried out in a loving way. He creates in love. He rules in love. He judges in love. 1 John 4 goes on to say, we love because he first loved us. In knowing God, we know what love is really like. And in sending Jesus, God gave us the perfect example of what love should look like lived out in the world. Jesus took the sacrificial element of agape love so seriously that he was willing to die on the cross for each one of us. As children of our Heavenly Father and co-heirs with Christ, we should also show this same character trait of agape love in everything we think, say and do. We will learn to love the same way God does and the same things God does. Our sacrifices will more likely be in terms of time, comfort or preferences, but this love will be costly rather than just a fluffy emotion if it is truly inherited from God. I'm sure most of us have been at a wedding where we've heard that famous passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we heard earlier, describing what love is like. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always 
perseveres. Because God is love, we would have no problem replacing the words love and it with God in that passage. It would still work. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy, etc., etc. And because Jesus came to provide us a perfect example of how to live this out, we can also substitute his name for those words, and there's no problem. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy, etc. But if we have inherited this agape love and are allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us to become more like Christ, then increasingly we should be able to insert our names into the passage. Have a go and see if it rings true. Hmm, I think I still need a bit of work. And the challenge continues because agape love is inclusive. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were completely rebellious and unlovely, God's love drove him to sacrifice his own son for our sakes. Ephesians 5 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We too are called to love inclusively and indiscriminately. Jesus even tells us to love our enemies. The Christ-like agape love within us should reach out not only to those for whom we have a natural liking, attraction, affection, or with whom we have a common interest, but also to the boring, the odd, the hard to understand, and all those who are unlovable in the eyes of society, and often in our eyes too, if we're honest. But we are absolutely helpless to love in this way, in our own strength and power. The Holy Spirit enables and empowers us to live like this, to love like this and to live like this. It is a work of grace from start to finish. Picture in your mind someone, perhaps a colleague or a neighbour or even someone from here at church who, if you are honest, it is pretty hard for you to relate to or spend time with, let alone love in this selfless sacrificial way. Perhaps a challenge from this morning is to pray for that person and to ask God to show you how to love them.
Then thirdly, agape love is industrious. Earlier on, I read a quote which said that love is an overworked word for an underemployed emotion. And I said that I couldn't fully agree because love needs to go beyond just emotion. Jesus didn't just tell people that he loved them or spend time thinking warm thoughts about people. No, he constantly looked for ways to put the love that he had for people into action. And he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty as he memorably demonstrated when he washed the disciples' feet. We need to willingly and wholeheartedly find ways to put this agape love into action. There are things we can do as individuals. Visit someone who is sick or housebound. Invite someone lonely out for a coffee. Get someone shopping for them. Offer to do some DIY or gardening. Babysit. The list is endless. And then there are also ready-made opportunities to join in with the corporate activities that are already going on here at church. Help with our Grapevine Lunch Club. Join the Rota for giving lifts to the elderly. Speak to Nathan about getting involved with the children's or youth work. Or many other possibilities. Agape love can never just be a warm and fluffy emotion. It is an active, dynamic and transforming power to be lived out in every area of our lives for the glory of God. And then lastly, agape love is infectious. There's something about fruit which is strangely aesthetically pleasing. For hundreds of years, artists have used fruit as the subject of still-life paintings. And think of the artistic display outside a greengrocer's, which lures customers in to buy the delicious varieties on offer. The way we love others should be an incredible witness to God's own love and his transforming power within us. Our demonstration of the selfless, sacrificial, agape love we are called to should draw people to God as they see the amazing love he has for each one of us in our spirit-led attitudes, words and actions. I'd like to finish by telling you a true story that happened on a Christian summer camp. A teenage lad from a council estate in Dagenham had been to camp three times before and this fourth year was the last time he wouldn't be too old to come. Each year he'd seemed to have a good time but had always appeared really hardened to the gospel message. At the fourth camp his leader was a very well-spoken, chinos-wearing trainee vicar from Cambridge with completely different interests and demeanour. But over the week, the leader took the time to really get to know this lad. When he wanted to sign up for potholing, the leader went with him, even though he had a fear of confined spaces. 
When he ended up with his third choice activity of art, the leader gave up his prized place in the cricket team to keep him company. And when he wanted to play yet another round of golf, even though he was completely hopeless and getting worse rather than better, the leader was happy to take the time he could have spent on preparation or relaxing and reading the paper to keep him company and try to offer a few tips. And it was on the golf course that he asked the leader to explain the gospel to him and that he then became a Christian. He later explained that all his previous leaders had been nice enough, but that it was seeing the love that this leader had for him, a love which overcame preferences and differences that made him want to know that love from God for himself personally. How am I going to demonstrate that agape love to those I encounter this week?